Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature art lawyer Barbara Hoffman. She began her legal career as a civil rights lawyer, but her ambition to represent artists and other creatives, combined with her passion for the arts, led her to become a pioneer in the practice of art law. In this episode, I have a lengthy discussion with Barbara so she can share with us, particularly the artists, the aspects of art law that protects an artist and their work. She shares with us first-hand cases, one involving artist Howard Dina Pindell, another Faith Ringgold. We discuss many topics, which include the impact of COVID, contracts, copyright, the artist-gallery relationship, and the artist-dealer relationship. Barbara educates us so we begin to understand what is normal, what is abnormal, and who is responsible for what. Many of Barbara's clients feel she is one of them. For more than 10 years, her peers have named Barbara one of the best lawyers in New York, the best law firm in New York, best lawyer in America in her area of practice, and she's also been recognized by the New York Times, New York Magazine, and the Wall Street Journal. Her credentials are off the chart. She is brilliant, and I am proud to feature Barbara Hoffman on my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Welcome and learn. Barbara Hoffman, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. I'm so excited to hear what you have to say. So let's open up with, what exactly is an art lawyer? Uh, Educate us. How did you get involved in that? I decided to go to law school while I was living in Paris. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) And it was the late 60s, 1968. The Paris was having riots and demonstrations for social change, but I felt that my place was back in the United States. And in my last year of law school, I had the opportunity to volunteer for an organization that was starting up called the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts that was intended to provide free legal services for artists. I'd always been involved in, in with artists. I had studied art. I had a double major in French and art history. And so it was a delight to go back to working with people who were creative. And I enjoyed that so much that after practicing civil rights law for three years in New York doing major sex and race discrimination cases, I was recruited to be the first woman law professor uh, at a law school in the Northwest. 
and I was able to convince the state of Washington, which is where the law school was, to start and fund the Washington State Lawyers for the Arts, which was going to be housed at the law school where I was teaching. That's impressive. That really started me because we got funding from the state. We went around the state. I formed a board of lawyers. We went around the state educating artists on their rights in copyright, trust in estates, contracts, artist gallery relationships. And then fast forward, there is no art law as such at that time. And so having the opportunity to be one of the early um, people in the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts Network enabled me to have a broader forum and to work with other lawyers. And we began to focus on developing what would now become a very popular specialty called art law. And essentially what art law is, is to take traditional areas such as contracts, copyright, trusts and estates, international law, sales, and look at those through the lens of, in our case first, the artist, and then as my own field of, of interest and practice became broader through the lens of the art world, through the collector, through the auction house. But I must say that for myself, my focus has always been primarily on representing the artist. As the art world now has boomed and blossomed for about 20 years now, I've also been heavily involved in the field of cultural heritage, um, representing source nations, that's to say people who want to recover their antiquities. But I've never lost my focus and vision, which is to assist artists in achieving their vision and their voice. And in that sense, I am extraordinarily fortunate because I have had the opportunity to work with some of the most amazing people and to be involved in cutting edge developments of the law with respect to art law. What, what do you feel are some of the most important legal issues confronting artists now? The, the legal issues that are confronting artists now are quite similar to the areas in which I developed art law more than 40 years ago. Issues that deal with artist gallery relationships primarily, I would say, in the time of COVID-19, when many galleries will be in a fragile financial position and may not be able to sustain their galleries or to pay their artists 
uh, there was there is recently a situation when Paddle Eight has just gone into bankruptcy, and interestingly enough, one of the original focuses for the volunteer lawyers for the arts organizations was in the seventies when a lot of galleries were in a fragile position to introduce arts legislation called the Artist Gallery Consignment Law, which now exists in about 40 states, to protect artists and specifically to protect artwork that was placed on consignment from the creditors of the gallery if the gallery were to go bankrupt. So that area is one which continues to be an important focus of mine. And it is an important area now. It becomes even more important that artists who consign work to galleries do so and ask for a written contract and document the inventory of artwork that they've consigned to the gallery and to make quite clear what the conditions of, of sale are and the conditions of payment. I realize now that I've used a word also that's critical to people who may be listening to the podcast, which is the word consignment. The usual business model for the art world, or as we would say the professional art world, is that the dealer does not buy the artwork outright from the artist. The usual relationship is what is called a consignment relationship. That means, by law in most states, that the relationship that's created is a relationship um, of agency. The gallery is the agent of the artist for the works that are consigned. And maybe the agent of the artist, not only for the works consigned, but if it's an exclusive relationship, it may be for all the works that are produced. The importance of it is that once a work is on consignment, it's not just a special business deal between, or a regular contract between the artist and the gallery. The situation is that this property, the artwork is trust property. And the gallery has certain obligations with respect to that trust property, with respect to paying the artist in a timely fashion, not segregating the funds and if the work is not paid on time, there are consequences. It's a breach of fiduciary obligation on the part or of, of a trust relationship. And while there are different state statutes that regulate this relationship, I'm surprised at how few cases there really are which involve the artist-dealer relationship. But for example, in Illinois, the law requires that if an artist 
consigns work to a gallery, they enter into a written agreement within seven days. Wow. And that agreement has to specify various points like the sales price of the work, the whether the nature of the agency, whether it's exclusive or non-exclusive. And in most state statutes, whether or not the artist has a written agreement, the law requires that if nothing else is provided in a written agreement, the artist has to be paid when the money is received. So that this idea that, which existed in the 70s when the gallery owner was buying a fur coat or a Jaguar and the artist was (laughs) with the funds that were received 100% from the sale of the work, that that can't happen. That's, That's illegal under the law and artists need to be aware of that. Otherwise, they can't ask for it. If they're aware that the law gives them these rights, they are empowered when they are negotiating a contract to say, this is not really my idea. (laughs) Don't think I'm a troublemaker. (laughs) This is what the law requires. This is normal. This is customary in the business. I think the reason there aren't more lawsuits is because a lot of Artists don't want to get a bad name as a troublemaker in the art world. It's just, In the end of the day, it's a small world. And as we know, reputations are very easily lost. Having said that, I am and have been often involved in cutting-edge cases involving copyright and artists and involving other things. And I am currently involved in what I think will be a precedent-setting case for Howardina Pindell, who uh, is a a major American uh, artist who has worked for over 40 years um, as an artist and an art educator. And is known for talking about the discrimination which she encountered in the art world, having graduated with a master's from Yale, one of the first African-Americans to do so, and the discrimination she encountered at MoMA and in having her works looked at and purchased She entered into agreement over time with this gallery called the Namdis, George Namdi, who in the late 80s established a gallery in Detroit and gave a venue for sales to many well-known African-American artists who were painting in the abstract mode. Some of the artists were purely abstract. Some like Howardina had layers upon layers of meaning in works which ultimately appeared to be abstract, 
but were much deeper in terms of dealing with issues such as lynching or work or discrimination or other cultures. These artists that were represented by the Nandi were protected under artist gallery consignment laws, which had been enacted in the 70s. Our lawsuit says that the Namdis essentially disregarded these artist gallery consignment laws and did not pay their artists, did not pay Miss Pindell as they had to, did not keep records as they were required to do under the Illinois law and uh, as a fiduciary did not pay her on time and did not pay her in full for works of art that were sold to their benefit rather than benefiting the artist. And what was that time frame? How long ago was this? The case actually is had, was only filed in 2020. Uh, unfortunately, I say, unfortunately, some of these issues were going on for quite some time. And one of the arguments that the Namdis are making is that our claims are time barred because we did not file our lawsuit in a timely fashion. However, without going into the details of the law, we don't believe that this has merit because the law seems to be clear that the statute of limitations doesn't begin to start ticking until the artist in this case makes a demand for the return of artwork, which is held by the gallery, and the gallery refuses to return it. And that only occurred for us in 2019. So I guess one of the messages of this particular story is that it's a lot simpler if artists have a contract and if the gallery is not performing as they're required to do to take action sooner rather than later because it often doesn't get better. <laughs> yeah, in most cases. So we've talked about the artist-dealer relationship. Yes. And then there's the artist-gallery relationship. Are they the same, different? No, the art, artist-dealer and artist-gallery relationships are the same. The difference that you might want to make is that some uh, I've encountered some situations, and I imagine that artists will be encountering these even more or other people in your audience. An artist gallery relationship is an, is an agency relationship. What distinguishes it from what you could say the artist dealer relationship, or if you want to say quotes around dealer, is that some dealers quote may be agents in the sense that they don't have a physical space and their role is to either represent the artist 
so that the artists can find a gallery or dealing with estates and artworks, those dealers may be dealing not with the artist at all, but with artwork that they are then trying to sell. The important thing is, is that if the dealer is not strictly an agent because all they're doing is selling one work of art, that might be an argument that it's a pure business situation. But of course, for the person who's selling the work, the agency relationship, if it's specified, is always one that imposes a higher standard on the dealer or person selling it. Another form of relationship is, is often you'll hear people talk about commissions. An artist may be commissioned to do a work by a developer, and that developer could be represented by an art agent. Those people are not have no agency relationship to the artist. They're simply people who are hired to be an intermediary between people who don't know anything about art and, and, and the artist. At, presumably, they know something about the art. So that's a different kind of relationship. I would like to, if that question is over, I would like to move to a different area because I think it's so important. Be my guest. (laughs) Both in terms of this, another precedent case I did for another artist um, that involved copyright. Copyright for people who don't know about it is something that is an in, it, it basically creates an intangible bundle of rights that attach to or float above the object itself. And copyright for visual artists is very important because the rights which are part of the copyright holder's rights, and that copyright holder is, in fact, the person who creates the work, unless it's a work for hire, is um, the right to reproduce the work, the right to create derivative works, the right to display the work, the right of first sale, and moral rights of the artist, which are only applicable to works of visual art. And that involves the right of integrity of the work. That's to say not to have it destroyed or mutilated and shown in public in that way. And the right to be credited as the author of the work. So people may have heard the podcast may be familiar with the Five Points case in Brooklyn. That, That case where artists really scored a coup in the Second Circuit because of the destruction by the real estate developer of the building that had commissioned these graffiti artists to decorate the building, obtained maximum damages in the millions of dollars from the developer. 
and the reason the case is so important is that it shows how expansive the protection of the idea of a work of visual art is. Prior to that case, people did not think that it, it applied to graffiti or graffiti artists who particularly like to think of themselves as outlaws of a, of a certain type. And the second thing that was so important about it was that they argued that graffiti was never meant to be permanent. But in fact, the court, lower court disagreed and so did the appellate court. So this really strengthens the Visual Artist Rights Act, which every artist has unless you get a commission agreement which says that it should be waived or given up, which is more often than not in the public arts field unless people are represented by me, in which case I put up a very, very strong fight against it. But another, another area of copyright that I wanted to talk about was the Faith Ringgold case, which involved the use of art in film. The High Museum of Art has an amazing work of Faith called Church Picnic. And it's an artwork that has been described by Art News as, as popular in attracting people to see it as Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night wow. at the Met. Wow, amazing. It, it, it's, really, it's really an amazing work, and it had that popularity. So it's not surprising that when the High Museum of Art in Atlanta asked for the right from Faith to make posters of the work which they would sell, she agreed. The right to make a poster of an artwork is both the right of reproduction and may also be under certain circumstances considered the right to make a derivative work. So Faith licensed that work to the High Museum of Art to make posters. One of those posters was purchased by somebody and used as set dressing in the sitcom Rock that appeared on BET. It appeared on the wall of a church inside in this sitcom in the last five minutes where they're holding a recital and Rock has basically ripped off the parents of this ch these children who are poorly playing the violin in this church at this concert. The sitcom was seen by Faith's husband, Bertie, and, said, and called Faith to the teller and said, Faith, that's your work there. And fast forward, Faith, who is an amazingly uh, courageous person, speaks her mind and is not afraid to take action when a wrong has been done, said, they stole my artwork. They can't use that. And I said, but Faith, the precedents are all against you. There have been several cases in the lower courts, and the bad news is that Artwork, unlike music, is used in film and television without obtaining a license. 
particularly if they think that the work is incidental. I explained to her that nobody would ever have happy birthday playing in a, in, in a sitcom without getting a license for it, even for five seconds. <laughs> but that wasn't the case. Nevertheless, she was ready to accept that I thought it was the wrong thing and I thought that the law was wrong and that we might lose in the lower court. And we did. The judge gave us our sympathies, primarily because the sitcom was so awful and we all had to be watching it. <laughs> End <laughs> <But> this. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> But you know, he said, you know, this is what the law is in the circuit. He gave a quick decision. He found that it it was not it was not a fair use or de minimis use, which is what the lawyers for BET argued. We appealed, and I think this is really quite important, which is the 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 lawyer for BET made this ridiculous argument in the appellate court. And he said to the judge, it's a panel of three, your honor, this is fair use. The use is de minimis. We didn't take anything special. Ideas are not protected. Mm -hmm. All we did is essentially depict an image from the poster of a couple of black folks dancing. And the judge said to him, your argument is like saying that assuming the Da Vinci Mona Lisa was in copyright, your honor, all we did was to take the smile. So, of course, the judge was on our side. He did not find it was fair use, which is the classic defense that people use when they are using a work of art without permission. It was a very important case. They only took 29 seconds, shown it totally, with seven different shots, but the judge found that the, the use that they made of face poster was the very reason that she had created her work of art, which was to be displayed on a wall as an aesthetic statement. And so the fact that they had a similar purpose in their use and also interfered with her licensing market meant it didn't meet the requirements under the law for fair use, which is a four different factors. And what's interesting and important about that case is that not only did we win, but even though the tendency now is for fair use to be applied much more expensively as it has been since the photographer Patrick Carew lost to the artist Richard Prince in a big fair use case, also decided by the Second Circuit, incorrectly in my view. The Faith Ringgold case is still an important precedent 
for artists to be aware of because the reasoning of that case, which is if some pirate uses the work in exactly the same way that the original artist intended, it's likely not to be considered fair use, although it is, in fact, a balancing of these four factors. In any event, that case has totally changed the way people do business in Hollywood. And now, every time an image is used in film and television, a license is negotiated. And for some uses, like posters or long scenes or as a featured use, the licensing fee can be $40,000, if not more, or it can be very little if it's only the image hanging on a wall. So it's a very important precedent. And artists should, in fact, be aware that all of these rights of copyright belong to them from the time that the work is created. That registration of copyright is important because it gives you a chance if somebody violates your copyright to get statutory damages, which can be $150,000 per image infringed. And it also, when you put the C in your name on it, establishes to the world, although it's not a requirement for copyright protection, that this is somebody who knows about copyright and may be willing to protect the content of what they create. So it's an important precedent, and again, something that artists should be aware of, particularly now in the age of the internet. Yes, let's, yeah, let's talk about that, yes, the age of the internet. So the internet, of course, has had a major influence on the art world and the art market, and particularly at this time, and I was talking about that in relation to, to the art agent. The art world is changing dramatically. And the real question I think that everybody is dealing with is the future of distribution as we knew it, whether art fairs, which have become a major source of development for artists, are going to continue with the same importance they had before, whether artists can sell over the internet and what are the restrictions on doing that, depending on the nature of the artwork. The question is, what are they selling? There's no question that copyright on the internet is the same as copyright in print. And that has now been established that the court applies the same principles, fair use, the same principles for infringement. The problem is, is that depending on what it is you're selling, um, it's a lot easier to have it ripped off if you don't have the correct uh, agreements or terms of service, protecting the work. If you're a photographer, you're much more at risk. You're like a person over 75 for COVID-19. If you're a photographer using the internet, much more at risk than somebody who creates sculpture 
But I think that there are, you know, many uses that that can be made um, in terms, particularly since so many artists are now working in multimedia with live streaming. But all of these things are now, the, I mean, are the product of licensing. I'm on the board of Performer, which is a wonderful organization. We do so much with artists and copyright and a lot of our work is, in fact, live performance, which is then documented, but that's also protected in terms of contracts with both the artist and with archives. So artists often wear two hats. They are both creators who want to use everything freely that's available in the world for them to incorporate they also want to protect what it is they've created and all of this becomes even more important but not necessarily with different laws applied in the internet galleries too i should point out that if you sell artworks the copyright is not transferred automatically the copyright is separate and apart from the object. So for artists, when they do sell works, when they have works exhibited in galleries, they are not conveying the copyright to those works, and that's something that remains with them. More broadly on the internet, beyond copyright, there are all different kinds of deal-making that's going to be going on, both with respect to galleries, the use of auction houses, and how all this plays out contractually. My own feeling is that we're really just at the beginning of seeing how the distribution system in the art world is going to be affected. There's also a really important distinction that needs to be made when you talk about the art world, galleries as well, in terms of those that are dealing with living artists and developing the careers of living artists and those dealing in the secondary market, which is a very different consideration for both the gallery and the artist. And then third, there's the whole question of the estates of artists, which are also taking on a whole new life, both in terms of artist foundations and the uses that can be made of the internet in building artist legacies uh, at a price that's affordable that wasn't before in terms of enhancing the reputations of artists who are no longer with us. This is so, so interesting. As you were talking, I wondered, a slightly different topic, but how should the artists, what precautions should they take if they're working with auction houses? I mean, I don't know exactly what what your question means in terms of caution in working with auction houses. There are two different aspects to the to the auction. Usually, when when artists or collectors or dealers work with auction houses, the original model of auction houses was to consign works of art to the auction house, 
And there the concern always is since the market is not controlled. The only control of the person who consigns the work is to put in a reserve price that says you can't sell the work at a price that's um, lower than this work. The determination of the reserve and what's going to happen at that auction can really impact an artist's career. So for that reason, and again, this is extremely complex. On the one hand, artists, particularly in this period of time, when they consign works to galleries, if they have anything to say, some of them want put into their contract that the gallery has with the purchaser that the purchaser won't put that work up at auction for a certain number of years, or if it's put up at auction, that the artist has a right to buy it back. The reason is that sometimes if works are put up at auction, you don't know what's going to happen, and they may get an unrealistically low price, which is harmful to the artist's career, or it can also involve a whole other skewing of the market with an unreasonably high price and then the artist's work on so in any in any event, that's one of the hazards sometimes in dealing with auction houses. Auction houses also now are taking on a role that makes them start looking a lot like galleries. Uh, Sotheby's had this really, started this whole thing, this art advisors that was trying to advise artists' estates, take on all of this work as a vehicle for getting a market for the auction house automatically. And I think the question always is, in the sense, again, looking at it from the artist's perspective, what is the value added by the arrangement that I'm entering into when somebody is going to sell work of art for me? And that calculation is becomes important. One of the things that I think is very important is that I know so many dealers who are really wonderful dealers in the sense that they have developed the careers of artists and the estates of of artists with a real hands-on approach where there are other galleries who are among the top major galleries who do nothing to develop the artist's career other than have the artist's price inflated by X number of dollars because their clients and the fact that they are representing this artist is a good housekeeping seal of approval that that creates this price for the artwork because it's from this gallery. But for many artists, if that is not sustained, they will not be nurtured and developed. The same thing with 
working with an auction house. The same thing also, artists may decide to try to sell their work online or a collector may decide to try to sell work online because now the internet has made doing this or self-help an easy thing to reach a large audience. The problem with it is, is that if these people who have been providing that service to you really have been doing a good job. Many artists or collectors will find that they can't do as good a job. And particularly for the artists, they'll become a dealer rather than able to focus on their artwork. I might mention I helped Faith Ringgold set up her foundation. And one thing she said was that she said, I'm setting this up while I'm a living artist because I want to see how it's going to work. And I think I'm committed to it. But I'm not an executive foundation director. I'm an artist. So there's a balance. Fortunately, she's been able with her tremendous energy, not only to achieve a fantastic foundation that's doing amazing things, but to continue her art, continue creating, and is now getting the recognition that she deserves with MoMA having only purchased a work of art of hers six years ago and, you know, now saying, oh, you know, when, when, what, where were we? What happened? You know, why is this now being featured as a Picasso? Right, right. And room, where were we? What, not at the table. So, you know, it, it, everything, it, everything that I'm saying is nuanced. It's not black and white, and there's always pros and cons and other ways of looking at it. And that's why I think that it's fantastically interesting. I certainly am passionate about what I'm doing, and I like to be creative in figuring out solutions for my super creative talent clients. <laughs> this has been wonderful. It's a great education for me, but for the artists at Tune In, it's very informative. So before we end this conversation, share with people how you can be contacted. I mean, share with them the details about your practice. Well, practically speaking, I... I have a website. I have an email, which is artlaw at hoffmanlaw.org. What I would like to say is in terms of uh, contacting me, I would like to contact you in the sense that I have a newsletter that I put out called The Art Lawyer's Diary, in which I write about the intersection of art, politics, and culture. And I believe that that mix is one that's extremely interesting, extremely important. And I know that's important to so many of my clients who are really involved in social justice and bringing about change in their work. And the rewarding thing is that they all have so much integrity in terms of what it is they're doing, and particularly, I shouldn't say particularly in the sense of being exclusively, but certainly people who are working in the area of public art and public art commissions, where there's so much hassle that's involved 
that doesn't exist in going to a gallery if you're a successful artist and having them sell the work. And they still maintain this interest in doing that because of the interaction with the public and what public art means that I think it's really quite important and it's a privilege to be able to work with the people that I work with in terms of making this a better world, which is what I think unites all of us in terms of what we do. Yes. Yes, art is a, a wonderful place to be. And thank goodness we have people like you to support the creators, the artists, and provide them the protection they deserve. Well, I'm honored to be on your program because certainly you have had a, an amazing group of cerebral women <laughs> on your podcast that everybody should listen to them. Thank you, thank you. Yes, I'm here to promote artists, so... Um, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to feature you. Thank you so much, Barbara. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram. <laughs>